The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Monday, September 18th, 2017 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. You know, labels are hard. What to call people? What to call ourselves? What to call Alabama Republican Senate candidate Roy Moore? Chief Justice Roy Moore, former Chief Justice, injustice. You call him leading candidate for next week's primary election. But today, a recording was aired unearthed of Roy Moore, who is leading and uh, could unseat the uh, Senator Luther Strange. And he was talking about racial divisions. Now, know this Moore was the Supreme Court Chief Justice twice tossed off the Alabama Supreme Court for refusing to adhere to federal rulings about things like the Ten Commandments and same-sex marriage. So here he is talking about racial divisions in the United States. Now we got blacks and whites fighting, reds and yellows fighting, Democrats and Republicans fighting, men and women fighting, What's going to unite us? What's going to bring us back together? A president? A Congress? No. It's going to be God. It's God. Blacks and whites, reds and yellows. How come when a racially insensitive Alabama judge says reds and yellows, it's racist, but when the Sugar Hill Gang raps it, they define an art form? Oh, to the black, to the white, the red and the brown, and the purple and yellow. But first, I gotta couple observations here. The two examples that I gave you, Sugar Hill and Roy Moore, by the way, those two go together all the time. They're like uh, the classic pairing. They're an inversion of the usual rule of definite article racism. You know how this rule works, right? If you use the definite article in defining a racial group, for some reason, you up the racism quotient by 15 or 20%. Let me, let me give you some examples. Um, if I were to say, Look, if you want Jewish people to back you, you have to go to the temples or Hispanic voters care about immigration policies, but other policies too. That's one thing. But now listen to with the definite article. You got to go to the temples for the Jews. The Hispanics vote on immigration. See, right? When I start the sentence, let me tell you something about the gays. What you're going to hear about the gays is not going to be to the good. But the Sugar Hill Gang, they were the ones who went with the black and the white and the red and the yellow. Could be the fly beat that we excuse. Here's another rule of racism. And by the way, all the just rules of racism are available in a laminated set. Trade them among friends. Another rule of racism that I thought was definitely going to be put in play by Roy Moore was this one. It's something that a person will say to get them off the racism hook. They think it's a really great argument. But I would say it has never worked in the history of trying to claim not to be a racist. So here's what the person says. Hey, look, I don't care if you're black, brown, white, or purple, right? The guy thinks, almost always a guy, the guy thinks that by throwing the purple in there, you're really showing your non-racism bona fides. But in fact, a lot of listeners will say, um, I am black and my friends are brown and you are white. There is no purple. The first category, that's a lived experience. Purple, that's an alien from the second season of Star Trek. Now that I think about it, though, maybe what damns the talker in the not caring for black, brown, or purple is just showing that they don't care about a purple entity or humanoid. I mean, you should definitely take note if there is a purple thing in the room. Get that purple dude in here. 
And, I, you know, I understand that your radar will go up a little bit. You worry that the guy is trading in those really vicious anti-purple stereotypes that, you know, the old idea that all purple humanoid life forms hate shellfish. Really? Come on. Is that really true? Are you that anti-lavendite? Or I suppose you're going to do that highly offensive purple accent, you know, the bilateral lisp and plurals followed by a bird call, right? Like, um, uh, four score and seven years ago. Listen, if I offended any purple humanoids out there, you know, I don't, I don't really see race. I don't even see that you're purple or are holding a phaser towards me. Listen, it's all there in the laminated trading card, just race set. On the show today, I spiel about healthcare for all. You get a healthcare. You get a healthcare. But first, Herbert Viola for all. Booger for all. Curtis Armstrong is a character actor who embodies friendliness. Tom Cruise hung out with him in risky business. John Cusack kept making his acquaintance in Better Off Dead in One Crazy Summer. And then, of course, there were the brothers of Tri-Lambda, who thwarted those a-hole alpha betas, revenge of the nerds, and nerddom in general, as seen through the eyes of one of the nerdiest. You knew him as Booger in Revenge of the Nerds, Herbert Viola in Moonlighting, and he really uh, had the crucial scene in Dodgeball when he announced that the Girl Scouts had been doping. That's the last time I saw him. It was three days ago. I turned to my kids. You know, it's important to get the kids to watch Dodgeball when they're 10 and 8 and said, I'm interviewing that guy next week. That guy is that guy, Curtis Armstrong, who has been in some of the most iconic films of my youth and maybe your youth, if uh, you're like me and you wanted the nerds to finally get their revenge. Hello, Curtis. How are you? Thank you for coming Hello. On. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much. How'd Thank you make you. that? Let's Dodgeball. Let, yeah, let's start with Dodgeball. How'd you make that part your own? I saw him as professorial. I saw him as, you know, having a commitment to fairness overall. Uh, tell me how you got inside that character. Uh, well, it wasn't, it wasn't an enormous process for Dodgeball, actually. <laughs> I'm sorry, we we have a bit of a problem here. Unfortunately for Troop 417, during the ADAA required random drug screening, one of your players' urine tested positive for three separate types of anabolic steroids and a low-grade beaver tranquilizer. I'm afraid, by rule, your team must be disqualified. God damn you, Bernice! <laughs> by the power vested in... That was one where they just called up because they said that they were doing sort of a tribute to the kinds of movies that I had done back oh. in the day, nerds and all that. And that's what Dodgeball was for them and asked if I would just make a cameo appearance because it just seemed right that I'd be present in some place. And that was the only place they could fit me <laughs> was as the somewhat professorial character whose name eludes me now. Uh, let me see um, what let me see what's listed on the call sheet. You ready? <laughs> it says right here I have Dodgeball. You were named Mr. Ralph. Mr. Ralph. Mr. Ralph. <laughs> see, it hadn't even occurred to me all these years 
that's who it was. But Ben Stiller said that it was, you know, that that was one of the formative movies for him. And that was why they wanted to have me there. Oh, yeah. It totally makes sense. And in so many of those movies of uh, the 80s and into the 90s, they had the iconic male character who was usually a good looking, somewhat short guy with dark hair. So I'm thinking of uh, I'm thinking of John Cusack. I'm thinking of Tom Cruise. And there next to him were you (laughs) who fits all those descriptions except for things like bone structure, uh, lantern chin, you know, just the yes. little things like that. Well, that's the that's what a character actor does, you know. I mean, it's, you know, the second banana, the sidekick, the other guy who is everything that the leading man isn't. You need to have that, if nothing else, to emphasize what a good-looking guy the lead is. And the truth is that with John Cusack, with Better Off Dead and so on, there was also a bit of a, a twist on that because John was not really considered that lantern-jawed leading man type of guy. He had really only been been cast in sort of nerdy parts, really, right. up until Better Off Dead. So that, with Better Off Dead, there was always a little bit of a wink. But basically, that was always my role and remains really, to some extent, my role to this day. Yeah, you're still in, I mean, you're in the forefront of nerd culture, and to think about nerds is to think about Revenge of the Nerds and eventually to think about you. I think maybe even more so than the two leads because uh, because those guys were a little bit interchangeable. That, what I By that, I mean there were different types of nerds. There, there, if you do a taxonomy of nerds, there were different types of nerds. And both mm-hmm. of the uh, two leads were of a similar ilk, you know. We're allowed to have girls in our dorm room? Not girls, Gil. Women. We're college men now. Isn't college great? It's going to be a great year. <laughs> <laughs> Computer horn rim glasses, stupid laugh kind of nerds. Where you were a different standout nerd, the scruffy nerd. What are you looking at, nerd? Huh? I thought I was looking at my mother's old douchebag, but that's in Ohio. Do you think that the type of nerd that Booger was, the scruffy nerd, the uh, maybe the nose-picking nerd, the belching poor tables manner nerd, my observation is that nerd actually, right around that time of the movie, started becoming the lead. And John Cusack played him in some movies, but Bill Murray played him in a ton of movies. The guy who would wake up late, who had a bad job, who life was going against him, and then he has a transformative experience like joining the army. And all of a sudden, you know, for the first time ever, we see that guy as a lead. So I'm wondering if that type of nerd that you played as Booger has somehow phased out of the culture. Maybe, but I never considered Booger a nerd anyway. He got thrown out with the nerds. They right. were all, you know, thrown out of their, their dorm by the by the Alpha Betas. They all wound up wandering in the desert together. And the nerds being nerds just accepted him without question because that's what nerds do. They never question the fact that he picks his nose or belches or, you know, says horrible things. They just accept him as one of them. Hi, Booger. <laughs> But I don't ever believe there was anything really that nerdy about him. Booker was just this this guy nobody wanted to 
hang out with because he was disgusting. Yes, yes. He was, he was, if anything, he was punk. He was like a Ramones fan. He was hardcore. Uh, yeah, kind of. I think that was, that was sort of who he was. And he sort of served the purpose of making the nerds even more appealing because they accepted him into their circle. And then by the end of the movie, he has become one of them. He's not just living with right. them. He's become one of them and is going to fight for them in the same way that they're all fighting. Right. And that was a similar thing happens to the Lamar character who was a black gay guy. Was it ever explicitly? I mean, it's a different time. It's 1984. I don't remember if it's ever explicitly acknowledged that he was gay and also. Oh, Yeah. That was the whole point. They have the the scene with with U.N. Jefferson, with Bernie Casey, and they're pitching the idea of them forming a, a, a fraternity at Adams College. And they say, you know, no race, creed right. or sexual orientation will right. be a part of this. So, you know, he brings a, a guy to the dance. Mm-hmm. It was pretty obvious that he was gay. And that was very deliberate. Wait till you see Lamar's throw. How come? Worms is a master at aerodynamics, and he designed the javelin to go along with Lamar's limp-wristed throwing style. Despite the fact that it's it's done in that 80s sort of cringy yeah. way, the idea was that, you know, this was a much larger story. The Revenge of the Nerds writers and director were really using this as a kind of metaphor for anti-Semitism and for bigotry, which was something that they were very open about and all of us were very open about at the time. But with all of the belching contests and nose picking, it's easy to forget that that was part of the issue. Exactly. And so there, Lamar, not a nerd, but an outcast in the monoculture of this college with a dominant football team and blonde haired right. guys in 1984. Right. And I think the 1984 thing is important because what we're really talking about is a rebellion against this, you know, oppressive, like I said, establishment or monoculture. And within a decade, Thanks to nerds, there's the flourishing of the internet. Now all media is niche, and you don't really need that sort of um, embrace of of a fraternity like Trilam as you did now. All the different niches and all the different weirdos, what were once considered weirdos, can now flourish and just have their own tribe. Well, that's true. But at the same time, they are continually under attack. Mm -hmm. If you use Revenge of the Nerds as a kind of metaphor, certainly for the political system at the moment and for for where America is now, it isn't dramatically different from where it would have been in 1984. The difference is that rather than have nerds be, be people who are scattered out all over the place and sort of searching for a community, they have long since found their community. And that's what's really valuable about Revenge of the Nerds to the extent that there's anything valuable about it was that it was was that moment that sort of clicked for people where they realized that nerds were a power and as long as they stuck together, they could – they could overcome. It is a comedy, an 80s sort of gross-out comedy Mm -hmm. of the classic type. 
But I do also like to emphasize that there was thinking behind it that I think is one of the reasons why the movie is still appealing to people now, despite the misogyny and the typical things from that period. There was an attempt to make a a larger statement. Right. It was a comedy that was loved and made people laugh, and that was due to its execution. But its resonance is due to the deeper things, the themes. Exactly. I mean, they were burning crosses on their front lawn. You know, they were throwing stones through their windows. They were using all of the, I mean, they weren't crosses. It was a big nerd sign they burned on. But, but I mean, it was pretty the, clear was, what it meant, yeah. It was pretty clear what they were what they were referencing. So now there's been, uh, I don't know, there's always a backlash. So Arthur Chu, who was a Jeopardy champion after one of these horrible mass shootings, he kind of looked within. He said, you know, uh, he was a, he's a computer guy, a, a lovable Chinese guy who always uh, chases the girl and has a crush that's unrequited. But he looked within and he sa- sort of called out some of nerd culture, how in 2017, you could always look at yourself as being the victim, but it's not always the case. And also, especially when when it comes to the opposite sex, you know, don't always feel he was essentially saying, don't always feel that the reason that you, perhaps your crushes are unrequited has something to do with uh, mistakes made by women. I just think it's interesting. It's an interesting coda to uh, where the, where our conception of nerds was and is. Well, yeah, I think the funny thing about about nerds is as a movie, it was really making an effort to do something different and it did and it succeeded in a lot of ways and the one place where it fell apart was in its treatment of women which as always and certainly within our culture writ large that's always where it seems we can't get a handle on things i think it's it's much larger than than the nerd culture but then the nerd culture is much larger than it was 30 years ago Revenge of the Nerd is the book. There's an asterisk. It says, or the singular adventures of the man who would be Booger. And that man is and has been and will continue to be (laughs) Curtis Armstrong. Good to talk to you, sir. Great to talk to you. And now the spiel. Bernie Sanders' healthcare proposal, which is to say universal, is getting a lot more attention than the Graham-Cassidy bill, which is the opposite of universal. It's very specific, uh, specifically anti-Obama, quite so. It's bad that Graham-Cassidy is all about being ignored, but I understand it. It is the same thing. It is almost the definition of not news. It's not new. It's warmed over, actually kind of worse than the failed healthcare reforms slash Obamacare guttings that went down in Congress. But still, we do have to pay attention because of these two ideas, the Bernie Sanders healthcare proposal that's getting a lot of attention, and Graham Cassidy, one could actually become a law, one will be allowed to come up for a vote, and that is not the one that's interesting to us. And if if history tells us anything, this bill will go down, but it might not go down Because another very clear lesson from history is that history tells us nothing. You know the old line, history may not repeat itself, but when it rhymes, it rhymes poorly, like a Steve Miller song. Abracadabra, I want to reach out and grab you. But another bit of abracadabra, or ledger domain, is the Bernie Sanders healthcare idea in general, which is that everyone gets everything for free. No copays, no deductibles, no fees, also 
not just free medicine, free dental, free vision. It literally would be the most generous healthcare system on the planet Earth, catapulting the United States from our current place, which is tied for last up to number one. We're number one. Some questions I would ask about this proposal is, are you serious? How can we afford this? Do you think the 80% of people who are pretty happy with their employer-provided health care are going to like this new idea? But those aren't the questions that Senator Sanders was asking on Meet the Press. Chuck, there comes a time when we have got to ask ourselves, why are we, the United States of America, our great nation, the only major country on earth not to guarantee health care to all people as a right? Second of all, why are we spending twice as much per capita on health care as any other major country, all of whom guarantee health care to all of their people. And our health care outcomes are not necessarily better. Third, why do we pay by far the highest prices in the world for prescription drugs? Yes, it is true. We are the only country in the world, well, Papua New Guinea, but the only developed nation in the world without some version of universal health care. Why? It's because we're out of step. That's what he's implying, that our singularity ipso facto marks us as deficient. Well, the United States is also the only country in the world that guarantees near absolute freedom of speech to its citizens. Oh, the EU is pretty good, but there are, quote, settled historical matters that are off limits discussing. And also the burden of truth is put on the speaker which stymies free speech a lot and the press. But we are as unique on speech as we are on health care. Does the uniqueness make us wrong? I think it makes us right. The United States and Papua New Guinea are the only two countries without universal health care. Well, the United States, Australia, and the UK are the only three developed countries without an official language. There are about four or five others There are some claims that uh, Costa Rica and Bosnia and Herzegovina have no official language. I looked into it. They seem to. So we're quite alone, if not by definition unique, but quite alone as to be pariahs on this issue of not having an official language. Here's another case where I want to ask you, does differing from international norms make us bad? I mean, sometimes it does. Sometimes it doesn't. I wouldn't use it as proof of anything. And as far as what Bernie was saying about per capita income, it is true. If you look at the percentage that Americans pay for health care, it's higher than the rest of the developed world pays. But the rest of the developed world pays a lot more for housing than the United States does. Housing is just as important as health care. They're kind of two necessities for life. It's just that different countries have different histories, perhaps different priorities and different circumstances. That one country spends more on one thing than another is not necessarily proof of a deficiency. I would like the United States healthcare system to be reformed. Fact, I will tell you this. If you ask me, Mike, go back 100 years and would you swap Canada's healthcare for America's healthcare? I would say, can I bet on some sporting events whose outcome I know? And they would say, no, it's just a healthcare swap. And I would say, I would do it. I think we would be better off with some version of healthcare more like Canada. But since that's not the case, and since I didn't get to put down any bets on the 1927 Yankees, I will say, look at the situation as it is now. Also, look at that other Bernie Sanders fact. He says, no country spends more 
on health care than the United States. That's true. But the United States, as the richest country in the world, or like Norway, one of the richest countries in the world, spends more on everything. In fact, it's basic economics. The U.S. has the most money. The costs of most everything are going to be higher in the United States because customers can pay more and sellers will demand more. You know what else the United States leads the world in spending on? Like most things. The answer is most things. I looked at entertainment. I have the 2016 stats. In the USA, uh, per capita household spent $4,612 on health care, higher than anywhere in the world. But they also spent, the average household, $2,913 on entertainment. Europeans spend around $1,500, $1,300 euros, $1,500 on entertainment. Now you ask, what does that mean? Oh, did I look into this? <laughs> Services include cinemas, theaters, opera houses, concert halls, sound and light shows, art galleries, they got good ones there, zoological and botanical gardens, aquaria, also services of photographers such as film developing, print processing, enlarging. They spend a lot of money on enlarging. And there is a notation, the entertainment spending also includes services of musicians, clowns, and performers for private entertainments. My point is that Europe's blowing a lot of cash on the clowns, people. No, that is not my point. Actually, my point is the correct question with universal health care isn't what Bernie says the questions are. And it's also not, should the United States have France's system or Canada's system or the UK's system? Or actually, or to be totally fair, systems that go beyond those systems, because as I said, Bernie's plan would be the most generous in the world. The choice is, let's go from what we have to what we want, right? The delta, as maybe some math guy would say. And Bernie, also his supporters, Cory Booker, Kamala Harris, the others who all signed on, they're all asking and they're all pointing us, look at the end result. Look at, if we got there, look at how good it would be. But they're not talking about the journey. And the journey would require so much disruption that it would turn a lot of people off. Uh, fairly, sure, unfairly, uh, the, the plan would be demonized, but also it would fairly turn a lot of people off. People were up in arms with the relatively modest nudge represented by Obamacare, and people weren't wrong to be worried. What the citizens of the United States continuously say about healthcare isn't, we want single payer or we want market forces at work. It's, we want healthcare. We want good and affordable health care. And we're not getting it, but I think with Obamacare, we'd be getting closer to it. You know, now 92% of Americans have some version of health care, and the majority of those who do have health care have it from their employers. And if you ask them, do you want to give up a system that you have now that's more or less working for you for a system that's untested, I would say most people would be against it. And I would say most people would be right to be against it. Now we get to the question of how universal health care works as a political matter. Is, is, is it pulling Democrats to the left? Uh, are Nancy Pelosi and Charles Schumer afraid to say this isn't a good idea? Maybe. You know, this idea that what Bernie did during the election is he pulled Democrats to the left on this issue. He introduced the idea that universal health care is viable. Is that, is that really what happened? Is that the real lesson of the last election? That the American people are ready for populist movements, especially on health care? Or is the lesson that details don't matter much? Is the lesson that a great idea is a lot more likely to grab everyone's fancy than a more muted but workable proposal. I wonder if that's the lesson. And so now here is my message. For everyone who told you not to dream of a day when healthcare was a basic right. To everyone who told you 
We couldn't get to that place where all of our fellow citizens were taken care of by our other fellow citizens simply because it was the right thing to do. For everyone who said it couldn't be done, they were right. They were absolutely right. Also, it probably shouldn't be done. And also, please try to avoid intra-party purges over a cockamamie idea. Thank you. I will now defenestrate myself from the 15th floor of the Tower of Liberalism. And that's it for today's show. Producer Dan Schrader doesn't mean to brag. He doesn't mean to boast. But he likes hot butter on a breakfast toast. Mary Wilson, just producer, points out that the butter's not hot until it gets on the toast. Maybe that's what Dan meant. Still up in the air, but it goes with the rhyme scheme. Steve Lichtai is not only executive producer of Slate Podcasts, he's six foot one and tons of fun, and he's dressed to a T. Oh, and I also wanted to mention, uh, I'm doing TV a couple times tomorrow. In the morning, 9 a.m., the Stephanie Rule Show on MSNBC. I'll be uh, part of a panel that's there and gone, then there and gone for most of the hour. And then uh, from 7 to 8 on CNN Headline News, S.E. Cup. She just keeps me there the whole hour. So there, you can get a visual on this guy. The gist, quite literally, going down in history as the baddest rapper there ever could be. Oomperu, depperu, duperu, and thanks for listening. <laughs>